Hi guys, and welcome to Time Travelling Team, the weekly podcast where we review every story of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Paddy. And I'm Trisha. In this episode, we're looking back at the first two-parter of Doctor Who, The Edge of Destruction. Before we jump into the discussion, though, Paddy, why don't you give us a rundown of today's story? Episode 1, The Edge of Destruction. All the travellers have been rendered unconscious due to the mysterious explosion that rocked the TARDIS. Barbara comes to first, but seems confused by her surroundings, and addresses the unconscious Ian as Mr. Chesterton. Susan awakens, but doesn't seem to recognise Barbara. She seems to be injured, but her focus is brought to the doctor, who has a nasty cut on his head. Barbara sends Susan off to find medical supplies, and turns to find Ian awake. He acts much the same way as Barbara, addressing her as Miss Wright, and doesn't seem to recognise the doctor or their surroundings. The doctor starts to mutter in his semi-conscious state, and Barbara slowly starts to remember more and more of where they are. Susan seems to be in a daze as she goes to get medical supplies. She returns to the console room and notices the TARDIS doors are open. Susan is afraid that something may have gotten into the ship as the doors never open unless commanded by the console. However, when Ian approaches the door, they close, but they open again as he moves away. Susan goes to try the console, but receives an electric shock and collapses to the floor. Barbara tends to the doctor and Ian takes Susan to the infirmary. Ian places Susan on a bed while he goes to get her some supplies. The medical dispenser seems to be acting as oddly as the rest of the ship, but eventually gives Ian what he wants. He returns only to find Susan brandishing a pair of scissors. She threatens Ian with them when he gets too close and then stabs the bed in a frenzy before collapsing again. The doctor has finally come around, but is still feeling the effects of his head wound. It appears that everyone has gotten their memories back. Barbara reiterates Susan's belief that something may have gotten into the ship, but the doctor fobs off her concerns and asks Ian to help look over the ship to see if there is an indication as to what happened. Ian asks Barbara to look after Susan, but not to mention anything about a potential intruder. Susan overhears him and takes the scissors again. When Barbara notices the scissors missing, she turns to find Susan brandishing the matter, clearly in the clutches of a fit of paranoia. Barbara talks her down, but Susan presses forward with the theory that something got into the ship and that if it's not hiding somewhere, then it's hiding in someone. Ian comes to report that there are no internal faults with the TARDIS, so whatever caused them to crash must be an external fault. He says the doctor has gone to look at the scanners and Susan runs from the room screaming that he mustn't. She rushed out to stop him from touching the control console, saying when she did it, it hurt the back of her neck. The doctor said that he had been feeling a similar pain, but Ian and Barbara have not. The paranoia in the group deepens. The scanner shows an image of a picturesque English countryside, but the doctor says it looks more like a picture than a real representation of what's outside. The doors open and close again, and the group hear a monstrous roar outside. The scanner shows more image of previous locations the TARDIS has travelled to, until it shows a huge white explosion. The doctor accuses Ian and Barbara of attacking himself and Susan, and then sabotaging the controls in an effort to blackmail them into returning them home. Barbara furiously tells the Doctor that everything they have done up until now has been for his and Susan's benefit as well as their own. This leaves the Doctor speechless, and she walks off only to scream in fright at the sight of an ornamental clock in the console room melting in front of her. The group notices the same thing happening to all their watches, and Ian uses this to prove that he and Barbara cannot be doing this. He turns to find the Doctor only to see him emerging from a room carrying a tray of drinks. He says it is a nightcap to calm their frayed nerves, and Ian remarks that at being unable to fathom the Doctor's frequent mood changes. They all retire to their rooms to rest, and Susan attempts to apologise to Barbara on behalf of her grandfather. Later, the Doctor checks to make sure that the others are asleep. Once he is satisfied that they are, he goes back to the console room. He starts to work on the console, when suddenly a pair of hands sees him around the throat. Episode 2, The Brink of Disaster The Doctor's attacker is revealed to be Ian, who seems to be trapped in a fugue state. He pushes Ian away, who then collapses to the floor and back into unconsciousness. The Doctor treats this as further proof that Ian and Barbara are behind the sabotage, but Barbara pleads with him 
and tries to convince them that there are some other force at work in the TARDIS. Susan appears and echoes her grandfather's sentiments that Ian and Barbara have been acting suspiciously. However, she seems reluctant to assist the Doctor when he implicates that he must eliminate their presence in the TARDIS. Barbara tries to wake Ian and explain to Susan what happened. Susan begins to believe Barbara when she thinks about what has happened to her. Susan pleads with the Doctor not to remove them from the ship, as it could be dangerous outside, but he seems dead set on removing them. Suddenly, the fault locator goes off, which causes the Doctor to become alarmed, and it seems he is drastically rethinking his thoughts on their current scenario. He reveals that the entire fault detection system is lighting up, and therefore he says that Ian and Barbara cannot be to blame for their current situation. He admits to drugging them earlier on, which is why he was so surprised when Ian attacked him. The Doctor states that there is some force assaulting the TARDIS, that has the capacity to destroy it completely. He says that they haven't crash-landed, and there is no other entity on board with them. Whatever it is, it seems to be affecting time itself, as Susan says the fault locator is resetting every 15 seconds. Another blast rocks the TARDIS, disabling the engines, but the console is still moving. The Doctor tells them that it is the heart of the ship, and if the power were ever to be let free, it would wreak havoc. As it is, they have only 10 minutes left before they are destroyed. Barbara puts all the pieces of the puzzle together, and realises that the TARDIS has been trying to warn them about their impending doom. The Doctor is initially sceptical of this as he says it is just a machine, but all the evidence seems to make sense. He tells Barbara and Susan to stand by the doors and inform them as to what is outside every time they open. He confides to Ian that this is a ruse to divert their attention from the end. Barbara notices that the image on the view screen seems to be repeating, and together she and the Doctor realise that the TARDIS is giving them a premonition of their demise in an attempt to prevent it. The Doctor realises that the power in the TARDIS is being drawn towards the creation of a brand new solar system. Ian asks the Doctor where he was piloting the ship that it could be drawn towards the event, and he tells them that he was aiming for Earth, utilising the fast return control function. However, the switch for the fast return has become stuck and sent them hurtling back towards the creation of the Sol system. They work frantically to fix it, and then everything returns to normal, much to everyone's relief. Susan reminds the Doctor of what he said to Ian and Barbara, and he becomes flustered, realising that an apology is called for. Ian beats him to it and says there are no hard feelings. The Doctor apologises to Barbara and thanks her for saving them, but she cannot bring herself to accept it just quite yet. Later, the Doctor attempts to apologise again once they have landed, and she eventually forgives him. They have landed in a snowy mountain region, and they all disembark to have a look around. Susan and Barbara called Ian and the Doctor over to show them an incredibly large footprint in the snow. End of episode 2, and end of the story. So that's the story summary over the way with, and now we're going to go over to Trisha for some trivia notes on this. Thanks, buddy. So the writer for today's story was David Whitaker. Now, David Whitaker was the story editor for the first 10 stories of Doctor Who. He has writing credits on eight Doctor Who serials, including this one, so we will be discussing his work more in the future. If you're a fan of the Target novelizations of Doctor Who, it may interest you to know that David Whitaker was the first writer for the novelizations, and he wrote the novelized version of the Daleks. Our director... Or should I say directors? So a bit of a background here. So originally the director for the story was meant to be Paddy Russell. She couldn't take the job, however, due to conflicts with another project. And it wouldn't be until season three and the story The Massacre of St. Bartholomew's Eve, otherwise just referred to as The Massacre, that she would get her Doctor Who directorial debut. So we'll discuss her more when we come to that story. The directing for this story was shared between Richard Martin and Frank Cox. Episode 1 was directed by Richard Martin. We already discussed last week how he directed episodes 3, 6 and 7 of The Daleks. And we will see more of his work in three more Doctor Who stories. The Dalek Invasion of Earth, The Web Planet and The Chase. 
Episode 2 was directed by Frank Cox. This is his first Doctor Who story. Frank is the only director who never directed an entire story, only ever recording episodes. His other Doctor Who directorial credit is for two episodes of The Censorites, which we will be getting to in a couple of weeks. The air date for the story was the 8th and the 15th of February, 1964. Different information is available on how exactly this this story came about. Either it was to fill a two-episode gap in the original 13-episode programming schedule, Unearthly Child being four episodes and the Daleks being seven episodes, or it was created because Marco Polo, which Paddy and I will be discussing next week, was taking too long to prep. Either way, this was a story put together on a very small budget. David Whitaker took the lack of budget and short story length as an opportunity to create a more character-driven story and set the entire thing inside the TARDIS. This is the only full-length story to only have the Doctor and the companions. We have no supporting cast this week. This, along with the setting of the episode and other cost-saving messages made in filming, including using stock music from library discs the BBC already had access to, meant the budget for the entire story came in at £1,480, which is well below the usual £2,500 per episode budget. The actors' responses to the story were mixed when they first got it. William Hartnell, surprise, surprise, commented on how there were so many lines to learn. Caroline Ford was a bit sceptical of the part of the characters appearing to go mad for no reason at all. And Jacqueline Hill and William Russell were actually appreciated being able to explore their characters in more depth. They kind of sound like a party of RPG players that don't like the DM that much or like the DM. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. And I do find it interesting that the two alien characters are perhaps a bit sceptical of the story. Yeah. Whereas the two human characters are really looking forward to exploring their character but more. I found that really interesting when I was looking this up. This is the first time on screen that we get the sense that the TARDIS might be sentient, a story point that would be developed much more as the show went on. Verity Lambert, the producer of the show, had to write a letter of apology for this story and no bonus points for guessing what it was about because it's very obvious. The BBC Children's Department were incredibly unhappy with Susan acting out violently with a pair of scissors. So Verity had to write a letter of apology, basically saying how it had been inappropriate and she was sorry. In later interviews, she has admitted that she's not quite sure why they did it that way um, and that it was incredibly inappropriate. In the original script, Barbara and Ian worked together at the end to figure out what was going on, rather than in the final version where it's clearly Barbara leading everyone else to the possible conclusion. Originally, it was her and Ian kind of bouncing ideas off each other a lot more and stuff. So... The MacGuffin switch, or the fast return switch, uh, is very clearly labelled in this story. That wasn't intended, to say the least. So, when William Hartnell and Caroline Ford were working together, they worked out what every button on the TARDIS console did. So, whenever they would have to push a particular button, they needed to make sure the button was the same every time. So, when they were in rehearsals, they worked out which one was which. This meant that they also would write um, little notes on it to say this is the fast return switch, this is the door switch, or whatever. They never expected it to actually appear on screen. It was a guide for them only. They assumed that when they got on set, it would be taken care of. Why Frank Cox didn't catch it during filming and cover it up 
nobody knows. Maybe he just liked the idea that the doctor has the really important buttons marked so he doesn't forget what they are. I actually think that's kind of cool, like that the actors took it upon themselves to make sure like that there was some sort of uh, consistency in like the buttons that they were pushing that you know, everything had an assigned role because like you'd see like uh, in like the original series of Star Trek, like a lot of the sa- a lot of buttons would have the same functionality or like different functionalities and it's like okay, it's kind of suspending disbelief as well. Yeah, and I think because you know, Caroline Ford and William Hartnell had such a really good working relationship and we've kind of discussed in previous episodes that William Hartnell's memory wasn't great. Yeah. So I'm sure a lot of it was to make sure that if Susan was to touch the door opening switch, that the doctor would push the same one. Yeah. Um, And it might not necessarily be an episode to episode thing, but certainly internally in the episode, they wanted to both be doing the same thing. Which and to us, I quite like the idea that the doctor has notes on them. I think it's really cool. <laughs> Do not push this. Push this. Very important. Big red button. No go. So as I mentioned, we have no guest actors this week. So we're going to take a little bit of extra time to discuss our final two main characters. That is Barbara Wright, portrayed by Jacqueline Hill, and Ian Chesterton, portrayed by William Russell. So we'll talk about Jacqueline first. She was born the 17th of December 1929. Sadly, she was orphaned at a young age, and so she was raised by her grandparents. She attended the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts on a scholarship and made her West End debut in a production of The Strike. What I find interesting is how she apparently got into acting. I say apparently because all the resources online don't actually have a citation for this piece of information. But according to these uncredited sources, she worked for Cadbury's, the chocolate company. Yes. And they had an amateur dramatics group. And I don't know why, but I find it hilariously funny that Cadbury's chocolate has an amateur dramatics group. And I sort of got this weird vision in my head at like two in the morning of that's why in, you know, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, the Oompa Loompas have like all these songs and dances that they all know. I like, do all chocolate factories have an amateur dramatics group? Well, I've I've been to a Cadbury's factory as part of a tour, and to be honest, like it's not like the most um, kind of like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory lies about what life is like in a factory. So I presume that they did this to try and uh, stay sane. <laughs> <laughs> so Jacqueline's on-screen debuts came in 1953 when she appeared in the film Blue Parrot and the TV miniseries The Rose and the Ring. In 1958, she married director Alan Rakoff, whom she'd worked with before. Jacqueline knew Verity Lambert from her time at ABC TV and was offered the role of Barbara after the two, after the two discussed the character at a dinner party. Fittingly for her character, Jacqueline said that she preferred the historical stories, um, which given the fact that Barbara is a history teacher, I thought was great. She went on to play Barbara for two years before leaving the show in 1965. Shortly thereafter, she gave up acting for a while to focus on raising a family, though she did return to acting in 1978. In fact, she appeared again in Doctor Who, though not as Barbara. She played Priestess Alexa in the fourth Doctor story, Meglos, in 1980. Sadly, Jacqueline passed away from cancer in 1993. Next, we have William Russell, born William Russell Enoch on the 19th of November 1924, He began acting on film in 1952 
and his early roles he was credited as either Russell Enoch or Enoch Russell before finally going by William Russell. He starred in several well-known films in the 50s and 60s. The Great Escape, anyone? And I have a, I have a huge issue with The Great Escape after re-watching it recently because just as an aside, sorry to distract us, uh, William Russell plays Soren, who's the security man for the X organization, which organizes the breakout. He's the only member, I think, of the X organization that doesn't get a credit at the end of the, the movie. And I just I feel really bad on his behalf. So, girl, hmm. yeah. That's not fair. His breakthrough really came in 1956, though, when he played Lancelot in The Adventures of Sir Lancelot. An awesome show, by the way, that displays the fighting talents we later see in Ian in some of our later stories. William, like Jacqueline, was in Doctor Who for two years before he left the show in 1965. Though he has not appeared in any Doctor Who stories since he left, William did provide linking narration for the video release of The Crusade. He is also a part of the Big Finish family, having not only reprised the character of Ian, but also played the first Doctor. He is the oldest actor to portray the character in any medium. Younger fans may know William Russell by association. His son is actor Alfred Enoch, who played Dean Thomas in the Harry Potter films and Wes Gibbons in How to Get Away with Murder. At the time of this recording, I am very happy to say that William Russell is still with us. Yay. And one thing just on your trivia notes there, it's, uh, it just kind of struck me again that they both left uh, after two years. But given the context of like how Doctor Who was back when in the classic era, like their two years like encompassed what like forty plus episodes more. Yeah, oh yeah, it was, it, it was ridiculous. ridiculous. I mean, I mean yeah, like, versus say um, like the modern companions who like you they would say oh they were on the show for two years, but they only have like a fraction of the amount of episodes. It was a different type of storytelling, and I think when people consider how long. Um, a classic companion was on the show and I actually had years of my I had this conversation with someone years ago I think it was a certain someone we both knew in college um, and they were saying how you know the new companions were better because they had more stories and more character development I'm like okay well maybe some of them had more stories that's true but the classic companions had more episodes yes and we got into a bit of a debate and they're like, no, they were only in in it for a year. I'm like, yeah, but one year is maybe six or eight stories, each of which has at least four episodes. Yeah. So that's 24, maybe 30 episodes rather than the more classic or the more um, new companions who maybe have 12 episodes per season. I like... Great, like so, yeah. Just taking a look there, like, and on average, like you say, you had uh, William Russell and Jacqueline Hill who had seventy-seven episodes in their their two-year run, and like you could also make the argument that because New Who is like forty-five-minute episodes now, if you broke that into halves, uh, like Billy Piper and I think uh, uh, Jenna Coleman, if you break even broke those episodes into halves, would probably be approaching an equivalent like of sixty-something odd. But it's, it's, again, it's just a different medium, I think. So 
So that is some very awesome trivia for a lot of different people involved in this. It's amazing that for even though two episodes, I think there's more trivia in this that we've had in like the seven episode of uh, Daleks. So that's kind of cool, I think. Possibly, yeah. Though I, I did do two main character trivia notes as opposed to one. Um, but I, the reason why I did that was because I had more time for this one. So, um, speaking of uh, char- uh, I suppose actors and characters, how about we move on to our review of uh, The Doctor and Cool? Yes. So, I think this story, by design, as I mentioned in the trivia section, is very character-focused. That is literally the entire story is practically character-based. So, Paddy, I'm going to put it to you first. Right. What did you think of the Doctor in this story? So, how I have viewed everything up until now is that this is actually one continuous arc. Uh, these 13 episodes are actually just one big, especially, yeah, like they're one big season, I think, uh, even though they're in uh, a bigger season. And I think this is the final stages of the evolution of the Doctor from being a... A wander, well, like we can't call him Time Lord yet because it's not announced, but a wander in time and space to being someone that has to interact with different people on a continuing basis. And he learns from it and he grows from it and he becomes the William Hartnell first doctor that we all know and love. Now, it is kind of interesting to get to see, and it's a huge testament to, I think, uh, William uh, Hartnell's acting, is that he can just on a dime switch back between the meaner aspects of when we first saw him when like the TARDIS is threatened and Susan is uh, threatened but he um, but he's also able to kind of be very warm and kind and considerate uh, when he's apologizing to Barbara at the end of it and I think this is a fantastic as much as he may not have liked the fact that the script has so many lines I think it really ended up doing him a huge favor because for me this was the thing that set the doctor on being someone that is, or sorry, William Hartnell's Doctor is someone that is my top five favorite Doctors. One thing that I did kind of find interesting at times was, it just I might have picked up on it a little bit wrong, is that he did seem to have a bit more concern for the safety of the TARDIS than Susan, but then I thought back on it, and it's probably, by making sure that the TARDIS is okay, he knows that Susan is okay then, because that protects both of them. So by association, him protecting the TARDIS is protecting Susan. And that's my kind of thoughts on the first Doctor. Yeah, I think in terms of the three-episode or three-story arc or the three-story like sort of mini-season, as you said, I think that's very true. I think even the BBC recognises that when you consider that the only way, it may have changed now, but certainly when they first came out, the only way to get An Unearthly Child, The Daleks, and Edge of Destruction on DVD was to buy the the beginning box set Mm. they didn't sell those three stories individually when they first came out that's how i got them yeah anyway and having a look online um you know other trivia stuff like that it seemed that they did come packaged together and you couldn't buy them individually which i think is good i think it's a good way of presenting the introduction to these characters is by having someone say okay you may want to watch the daleks you really should watch all three of these because they work very well together. Oh, yeah. In terms of the characters in this particular story, it's obviously hard to have a great deal of measure on any of them due to the nature of the story itself. The story is them going slightly mad. So it's kind of hard to pinpoint exactly what it is. For the Doctor, though, I got similar vibes to the man the public didn't get to see 
in the unaired pilot of an unearthly child. Mm. I think William probably pulled a lot of the characterization from that first recording. Yeah. He's paranoid, he's devious, he's cruel. He's unable to believe anything that he didn't think of himself. Yeah. I mean, the idea that he would chuck Ian and Barbara out into who knows where without knowing if it was safe or not is insane. And if we take the doctor that we saw in the Daleks, I mean, yeah, he sometimes wasn't very friendly with them, Mm. but he wouldn't do that to them. Yeah. The doctor that we saw in that honoured pilot, though, maybe he would. He's definitely capable of doing something like this. Yeah. Though the TARDIS was messy with their minds a bit and they were all going a bit mad, I think it's important to remember, and this is something that I'm sure we will come back to time and time again, particularly with the other regenerations of the Doctor, is that whole anger and you know willingness to throw someone out into the cold or whatever, irrespective of the danger, that is still part of who he is. He's not this paragon of virtue. Oh no, no. He has his issues. And I think this is a really good way of showing... Excuse me. I think this is a really good way of showing that. Yeah. He didn't make the accusations against Ian and Barbara up from nowhere. He really genuinely thought that they would do it. And there has to be some part of him that believed that on a real level. It's kind of like what people say when they're drunk or in the heat of an argument where someone might say something particularly cruel. Yeah. And while they can apologise later, a part of you always thinks part of them had to believe that. Otherwise, where did it come from? And like, it's, having watched the first two stories leading into this, it's very clear like that they are, like as you said, they're well-founded, like because he's frequently going head-to-head with Ian over what direction the group should take on in the scenarios that they find themselves in. And their insistence that they, that he bring them home. So yeah, like, in a scenario like this, you can be well sure that he would be feel justified in thinking that they've had enough, they're taking matters into their own hands, I'm not going to let them do that. Yeah, and while I loved his interaction with Barbara at the end of the episode, and I do look forward to seeing sort of episode by episode how their friendship will develop as the stories move forward, because I think they're, they're super cute and adorable together. Yeah. I was struck by how he didn't actually apologise. You say in your summary he apologised. He didn't. Well, this is the thing. Like, I suppose like, when Ian, Ian kind of beats him to the punch when he's being all like flustered, kind of going, blah, 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 blah. And Ian's like, yeah, no, whatever. But I felt like that when he went to her the second time. In his, no. In his own way. No. What he did is he excused his behaviour by saying it spurred her on and made her determined to prove him wrong. That is not an apology. That that is almost in a night in a much much nicer way because he was saying it to be kind. He wasn't saying it to be to be a prick. Yeah. But in a much much nicer way, that's like when someone says, you know, oh well, I wouldn't have hit you if you hadn't done this, or the fact that I treated you like crap growing up is what made you the person you are today. That's not an apology. Oh no no. It really isn't. And what I took away from it, and you probably completely disagree with me, and that's fine. One, not only does he not apologise properly, one, he claims credit for her brilliance. Oh, if I hadn't been such an asshole, you wouldn't have been so spurred on to prove me wrong. No, 
she's amazing in her own right. You don't get to claim credit for that. That's her being amazing. Stop trying to claim credit. And two, it shows that he is still really sneaky. It's still that, what we saw in the Daleks, that little gleam in the eye. Yeah. That's not gone away, which is part of who he is as a character. Mm. And I'm not saying this is a bad thing. I'm not saying it was an error in the storytelling. I think it's really interesting and it makes him a really complex character. But as much as I love that interaction at the end, I was struck on rewatching it and I, I, I watched it twice and I was like, he never actually said, I'm sorry, or even did anything to that effect. He was just trying to help her get over it and let's move on. And clearly she understood that it was his way of apologizing and clearly she accepted it. And maybe she accepted it because she knows that he's a weird eccentric man or whatever. But I was I was sat on my couch going, Stop claiming credit for stuff other people did. I was I was say like I just thinking like I, I actually didn't pick up on that. I, I, I just thought it was like because how flustered I was taking it from like how flustered he was getting when Susan said he had to apologize, and then like Ian kind of beat him to the punch. I assumed like that he was kind of carrying over, and this was his own way of in which he was apologizing. And Barbara just kind of went, "Do what? Fine, it's we're okay." Yeah, but I think it's important to flag it though, because you know if people look to the doctor as a role model, which a lot of people do, he needs to learn to apologize. And to mean it, not just this situation is uncomfortable, me, can we move beyond it? Yeah. Which is kind of what he did. And now, I'm not taking away his respect for her. I'm not taking away the great moment that it was. Just in my mind, it wasn't an actual apology. Yeah, <laughs> I, I can see that. So the other character who went, in my mind, completely all over the map in this story is Susan. Yeah. If the doctor ran, if the doctor ran the gamut, then then so did she. So, what do you think of Susan this time around? So the first thing that kind of came to my my mind was, sweet Jesus Almighty, Caroline Ford can play creepy. <laughs> it was just unsettling, and like just as a I suppose a side note, I uh, myself and Trish talked about this before the start of the episode. This is my third time watching this story, but the first time that I've watched it, uh, completely sober. Because the first time I watched it, I was a bit drunk. And the second time I watched it, I was in the thing of a hangover. So this is my first time watching it, appreciating it for all its wonderful glory. And I I, I liked everyone back, back then. I'm now even more terrified and uh, in all of the performances in this uh, fully sober. So I think Caroline Ford did a great job in this. There's a lot of, like the doctor, you said, you know, there was kind of traces of how he was portrayed in the unaired pilot. There's definitely a lot of traces into how Susan's behavior from the on-air pilot kind of transferred over into this one, I think. Also, as well, like I think because of the whole nature of, as we get to find out later on, like the Tardius, the tar- Tardius, the Tardis potentially being a bit sentient, and we know that Susan has some sort of, or is indicated to have some sort of telepathic kind of abilities, you end up feeling really, really sorry and concerned for her throughout this story because she's affected more so than the others because of that heightened sense of telepathy, I think, and it's probably in tune more with what's going on. And it's kind of, you can kind of contrast her against the other female character in this and that. Whenever she cries, it's in despair for what's going on. Whereas when Barbara cries, it's usually in frustration. 
that's what's going on. Whereas like Susan, it's like we see with the scissors, she's acting out because she doesn't know how to act. She's like she's she's a uh, like that, that's the what that's what I picked up on it. That's actually a really good way of looking at it. And if you try to think of it like outside the context of the story, you sort of have how an adult reacts to something, which is getting frustrated and you know like you said screaming with frustration versus how a child reacts to something yeah which is she's scared and she's upset and she doesn't know what's going on and that's a really good way of looking at it that that's just the stuff that i picked up on it because like i one thing that i think kind of gets lost in the fact that susan is is that is still meant to be a teenager and i think caroline ford was like in her 20s 23 23 and like Caroline Ford is a great actress and she actually she does a lot really well to get over Susan's childlike um, attitude towards things and approach to things and reaction to things and I suppose maybe we forget that she is a child even because we are so caught up with the fact that she's the doctor's granddaughter so she's alien she's world travelled but we don't know prior to an unearthly child just how travelled she is so I think this is probably a really good example of Susan being a kid. Yeah, and I had that in my notes as well. All of the emotions that we see, and she's particularly hard to pin down, like literally from one scene to the next, and even within a scene, she flip-flops back and forth. Whereas the Doctor sort of runs a course and then has a very quick course correct at one point. Yeah. But Susan is all over the map, and... The way I have it down is like, you know, she's scared, she's angry, she's violent, she's paranoid, she's friendly, she's accusatory. It's all the emotions of a teenager being displayed in this condensed time frame. And it is what makes her utterly alien. Yeah. And I I do agree with you on the telepathy thing. I mentioned last week in last week's trivia that originally Susan was meant to be slightly telepathic and that was meant to play a bigger role and we saw that in the honored pilot where she's doing that um ink blot drawing of the tardis and stuff like that and she how she was a little bit more weird in that honored pilot and i think it makes me wonder given how close her portrayal in this is to the honored pilot and how close william hartnell's portrayal of the doctor is to the honored pilot it makes me wonder if David Whittaker was working from that original version when he was writing this script. Maybe. I, I would say maybe he took inspiration for some of the character development uh, for the story for, from it. Yeah. I think in, inspiration, definitely. But I wonder if he had seen, if they had, like, you know, the scripts obviously were being turned out quite close to production time, but I wonder if he'd actually done a comparative difference between the unaired version and the aired version or something or if he just went there was bits in the unaired version that i still like to have as part of these characters let's pluck them out and and drop them into this situation yeah the thing with the scissors so you and i have discussed this particular scene ad nauseum yeah over the years i love that i love both scenes actually I particularly love the way the one with Ian was shot. It has a very Hitchcock feel to it with the shadow. Yeah. It was very, very well done. And the scene with Barbara as well, where Susan's just sort of lying there with a sort of really freaked out look on her face. It's so well done. Was it a good idea to show a 16-year-old girl attacking people with a household item 
like scissors. For a children's program, probably not. No. Particularly, and this is the thing that I found with it, is, again, going back to our previous episode discussions, one of the reasons why they reshot the first episode was because they wanted to tone down some of Susan's alienness and have her be someone that kids could relate to. Yeah. The fact that they made that choice, they wanted kids to relate to her and then they have her using scissors as a weapon. That was an interesting choice because I think had they kept Susan super alien at the beginning, it may not have been as much of an issue. It still would have been questionable, mm. but not as much of an issue because the kids wouldn't see themselves in her. Whereas now they went out of their way to make sure the kids did see themselves in Susan. And this is what they're presented with. I just, I, not to take away from the serious nature of it, but like this is two stories back to back where like kids have been like told to like, attack people like with whisks and plungers and scissors. And like, I think for the feel of the episode, if this had been a movie, say, right, I think this these sequences would be perfect. They'd be fine. They'd be absolutely uh, fitting there, not a bother given the tone of the story that we're being shown for the for the fact that it is a kids tv show yeah i i do completely agree that it's a bit questionable but at the same time you'd be kind of trying to figure out what could they have had her do that would get across that same sense of mania that she was experiencing yeah i don't other than physical violences and her being physical with other people so hitting them or whatever which again isn't great. I mean, there was never going to be a good solution to this. They wanted to have her attacking them, so she has to attack them. I think using a household item, particularly something like scissors, yeah, which can be used as a weapon in multiple ways, stabby stabby and cutty cutty. I understand the children's department's concern. For Susan, though, when we get to the end of the episode, she's back to being a kid again, throwing snowballs at people and all that type of thing. But again, as with the Doctor, it's why I love this episode so much. As with the Doctor, you can never forget that part of Susan. No. The fact that she was so adversely affected, that is a part of who she is. So whether it's her heightened telepathy, whether it's her age... Or whether it's just her being and who she is, that is a part of her. It'll be interesting to see if it comes up again in the stories going forward. So the next character I want to look at is the one who I have the least amount of notes on in this story. And that is Mr. Chesterton. Mr. Cheston, Chesterton, Chesterham, (laughs) whatever. Chesterfield. Chesterfield. (laughs) Yeah, so for an episode about character development... I don't think Ian got an awful lot of it in this episode. Yeah, I, I'd agree. Like, but again, my notes on, the, on him are kind of sparse as well. So how would you take the lead on this one? Yeah, so I don't think the lack of development for Ian is to the detriment of his character, though. Because in the previous stories, he's gotten some great character development. And I think in many ways, this is a chance for the others to catch up. With him. Yeah. I do think his portrayal of the character, though, 
is quite interesting to watch and a little bit humorous because at the very beginning of the episode he's very robotic yeah um both in his facial expressions in his movement in his manner of speaking i was like is this ian or is this data like because he was so robotic and then as the episode progresses he starts acting a little bit drunk yeah which i found quite humorous when i was watching it obviously being out of it when he passes out and when he's like coming around every now and again and he's obviously completely out of it and then we get to the man that we've seen all along ian is a fairly consistent person in general he's protective of everyone even the doctor and he's smart enough to have recognized that the doctor drugged them (laughs) um and you know we see that you know, he still wants to help and he still wants to help with the ship. And all the stuff we know about Ian is here. And, you know, he's very protective. You know, we see that. And we see that with the Doctor as well. And we perhaps didn't discuss that as much. But the fact that the Doctor knew that they had less time, but he didn't want to worry yeah, or scare Barbara and Susan. And Ian, again, very similar to the Daleks, where the two of them agreed, okay, Barbara and Susan should step outside because this thing looks... yeah. Super weird. Again, the two of them sort of conspire is the wrong word, but they make the choice to protect the women as much as they can. Yeah, I just, I, I have a really weird analogy in my head coming to uh, or a comparison. It's like uh, they almost remind me of Leonardo and Raphael from the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, who are constantly bickering, but when push comes to shove, they help the other two guys out and they help the family out. I think of all of your analogies we've gone through in these, in these podcasts, that's perhaps the most off-the-wall one, but I get what you mean. <laughs> but yeah, unfortunately, for me, that was kind of it for Ian. It was reinforcing a lot of things we already knew, and I think for William Russell, the chance to play, you know, the robotic, the slightly drunk, the sort of out of it waking up from uh, being unconscious, I think that was probably just lots of fun for him. No, I, I, I'd, I'd agree. Like, cause what, what, the thing that just kind of struck me is that in the partnership uh, Ian and Barbara have like, throughout the their tenure, this is the like the first story where he takes this, what I would view to be like the secondary role, if such a thing is like, cause like, like in uh, uh, an early child, Ian was the kind of one kind of calling the shots because Barbara was kind of out of her depth. In Daleks. Ian again was kind of leading things, but Barbara slowly got more comfortable, as we saw, especially when she uh, helped in the fight against the Daleks. Uh, Whereas now it's the the balance of uh, interaction or balance of how they should do things uh, shifts completely in Barbara's favor, which we'll discuss there in a few minutes. But yeah, like he's, I think Ian comes across as someone that is very loyal to everyone around him. And he wants to do everything that he can to protect people, but it's more, more just again more reflective of what you've already said. And this, like, Ian is one of my favorite characters for a reason, and this story goes a long way towards cementing that. Cementing that. Yeah, just as you were speaking there about you know who he is, the the thing that came into my head was Ian is almost a definition of a boy scout. Yes. Trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, obedient, kind. I've forgotten the rest of them. <laughs> Crafty, helps old ladies across the road. Uh... Yeah, Clean and reverent, I think, are two of them as well. Um, but that is who Ian is. I think that could be very off-putting to a modern audience. Do you know? 
but for Ian, it works. It really works. And I do love the the example you gave that you know in this story, Ian was on this sort of secondary companion seat. You know, yeah, he was driving companion co-pilot. Yeah, and at least in these three episodes, it sort of gives this show of for physical leadership, Ian. Yes, purely because of biology, um, if nothing else. But then for intellectual leadership, maybe more in Barbara's favor. Yes. How about we talk about Barbara now? I love Barbara. <laughs> I have always loved Barbara. But, and again, you and I discussed this a little bit yesterday. I have always listed in my top companions, Ian and Barbara together as one entity. I don't know why I've done that, but I always have. But again, having gone back and watched these in order... I am now going to change that. And for me, right now, Barbara, by herself, trumps Ian as my favourite companion. I'm actually thinking of doing like a running list (laughs) of orders and see if it ever changes on who's my favourite. Yeah. Because I think I was doing her disservice the last, what, 11 years of my life. She is awesome all by herself. Yes. While the same as Ian, we don't really see any part of Barbara we haven't seen before. Even her figuring things out, bearing in mind, she's the one who started this journey by being curious about Susan. Yeah. So we don't really see anything new about her. So she's still protective and caring of everyone around her and so, so intelligent and observant. I did notice that she's the one who came to first. And aside from that, very small blip of calling Ian Mr. Chesterton, which she quickly got over. Yeah. She is the one who remains most like herself throughout the episode. Yeah. And it made me wonder, and this is totally me, like, fanfictioning it up in my own head, if the TARDIS knew that she would be the one who could work it out. Well, maybe, like, because, like... You see, with with that kind of a thing, it's like we're jumping really far forward because up until I oh, I can't remember like who was the first person to probably indicate it. Probably uh, Doc John. You never really get an indication like the TARDIS itself is sentient. So looking back with that knowledge, then yeah, it's it, that is a good that is a good thing to probably uh, or it's a good theory. Whereas if we're watching this for the first time, it's it's very kind of hard to kind of assume that that's the case, but. The thing that can back up that uh, side things is that we've been watching Barbara develop now over the last 11 episodes. Uh, we've seen her kind of go from someone that's out of their depth to someone that can really master any situation that they find themselves in. Yeah. I think that with the whole TARDIS sentence thing, I mean, this episode, like I said, is the first indication we get that the TARDIS has any level of sentience whatsoever. I mean, they say the TARDIS has been trying to tell us so. I don't know. It was just that thing where I noticed that, you know, she came to first. She seemed the most together. And I wondered if the TARDIS was helping with that. But in terms of how that would happen, that is jumping the gun many, many seasons too early um, in terms of that. I loved her blow up at the doctor. It was great. And it was a long time coming. Yes, it was emotional. I'm sure there are people out there who would view it in a bad light and say it's an overreaction to those people. I would ask if it was a man, would you have the same feeling on it? But I think it's fully justified. And when she said, and I, I still, I love this bit. And I rewatched it several times. I love it so much. 
when she was giving out to him, I was like, you should be down on your knees thanking us. I was like, yes, Barbara, you tell that grumpy bollocks. And like, I I completely agree because like, I love the fact that Barbara doesn't readily accept any form. Like, I know we had the apology discussion, but like when Ian kind of goes, ah, look, it's, you know, water under the bridge. It was a stressful scenario, whatever, you know. Barbara's like, no, no, fuck that. It's going to take a lot more to kind of win me back and uh, you to get back on my Christmas card list. Um, and I think that, again, that's a testament to Barbara because a lot of, so we've talked um, a lot about how people look back on Classic Who and they may not have had the opportunities to watch these episodes and they may have been seeing like the cliff notes of uh, classic who where some of the female companions were screamers and i think that if you were to label everyone or every female companion of doctor who with that same kind of stigma you're doing a huge disservice by, for the amazing character development of uh, barbara wright and the amazing acting ability of jacqueline hill yeah another scene that i really liked is and this is probably my own personal history coming in um when she uses her teacher voice or what i would call a teacher voice when she's taking care of susan yeah and you know she's doing whatever and suddenly it's give me the scissors yeah just out of nowhere and it's that tone and it's that oh shit i'm in trouble tone so i i would call her her teacher voice but maybe it was like her mama barbara voice yeah <laughs> but the first time i saw it i was like oh i i it just seemed like a quintessential Barbara moment that maybe we won't see as often. But again, it's sort of the real Barbara sort of shining through. Well, like, there's going to be a lot of episodes coming up, uh, I think fairly soon as well, like where we get to see Barbara, not to the group, but to the story-based companions or the people that they interact with in the stories, where Barbara does put on that authoritative, authoritative classroom voice. And it you know, it actually does kind of make you sit up and pay attention. Yeah. Was there anything else about Barbara that you that struck you in this episode that we haven't discussed already? Uh, I don't really think so. I think, again, it's just that for me, this is Barbara is the powerhouse of this story. And she's the one that whatever anyone else is doing, your eye is constantly drawn to Barbara. Uh, and she might not be even doing anything like to kind of like uh, take your your attention on the screen away from the character talking, but as you said, she's the first one to wake up. She's the most clued in, so you constantly want to know what Barbara's doing, what Barbara's thinking. So I think this is like if you were to pick a showcase episode or a showcase story for companions, this one and one that we're going to review later on, the Aztecs, are the ones that you do to showcase Barbara. I think definitely. So usually our discussion of the Doctor and the Companions would be followed up by a discussion of the villain. But we don't have a villain in this story. So it's time to take a look at the story as a whole. So Paddy, out of five, Edge of Destruction. So you know me very well. I do. What is my favourite movie of all time? Don't ask me shit like that. (laughs) You know what this is because I forced you to watch it. The Thing. <laughs> yes, exactly. My favourite movie of all time is John Carpenter's The Thing. And the reason I love it is because... It's... What have I gotten that wrong? Don't say it. Don't, don't make me do things like that. Then like, we were just proven that you're probably not the best friend that I thought you were. <laughs> 
But no, my my favorite movie of all time is John Carpenter's The Thing, and the reason I bring that up is because that has elements of isolation, paranoia, suspense, horror, just everything. And this is the most comparable episode, story of Doctor Who to that movie. I absolutely love this uh, story. It's it, it's a hands down five out of five because the villain are the villain or villains if you want to put it that are the characters themselves because of their suspicion for each other and the fact that the doctor like isn't you know intent potentially intends to eliminate barbara and ian the people that could uh, barbara who we said you know is the person that causes is actually the savior of the story we'd have susan with the scissors that if she refused to listen to barbara would live it out uh ian in his uh, fugue state trying to kill the doctor so the villains themselves like it's just the scenario called, creates his own villains. I will I will just say one thing. Yeah. Ian was not trying to kill the doctor. He was trying to save him. Well, it looks suspicious. <laughs> yeah, but he explains it later. <laughs> yeah. At that time. At that time. <laughs> but yes. Yeah. No, he was trying to stop him. I realized that. But it, at the time, it looks that way. Which could have yeah. caused the doctor to lash out, you know? And... It's also kind of interesting to think, right, that for lack of a better terminology, like this could be viewed as a filler story because as we said, we talked about the production of it and there's the uncertainty as to was it just made to fill out a 13 episode production block or was it made to just tide fans over until Marco Polo was developed. But for a filler story to actually be the first for me, uh, five out of five perfect uh, rating, uh, I think it's a testament to the story. Yeah, and you know, another first, this is the first of the episodes that we have reviewed where we have the same score. Yeah. Definitely five out of five. And I, you knew coming into this that I'd more than likely give this a five out of five because I have gone on for years about how much I love this story and I have always loved this story. Yeah. From the very first time I watched it. And I'm so glad that my opinion of it hasn't changed. What? 11, 12 years later, I still have the same love for this story that I had when I first watched it. Following on from An Unearthly Child and Daleks, I think the small contained story was a well-needed opportunity for our heroes to get past their early mistrust of each other and bond together. I think if the mistrust went on for another full story, so four episodes of more, four episodes or more I think people would lose interest and the stories would become incredibly repetitive yeah like how can you get behind a show where the main characters don't like each other there's only so long you can watch that and bearing in mind one episode a week and each story has multiple episodes like it's been 13 weeks to get us to this point yeah so for me the fact that they're now a group of four traveling together who can have fun and throw snowballs at each other and make comments about their clothes and whatever. I love that we got to that point. Yeah. And using future knowledge, uh, any arguments that, that they have or any like confrontations that they may have with each other come from a place of concern as opposed to suspicion. Yeah, it's also situational based rather than historically based yeah if that makes sense so as opposed to our personal history it's hey why did you do that or why are we doing this which is good um i also love how and we discussed already this is barbara's story yeah and this is barbara coming into her own and more power to her 
Barbara's awesome. Yes. The scissors thing. <laughs> While not well thought out for a children's program, watching it as an adult, those scenes were amazing. Oh, big time. And I think as well, the fact that the the, the episodes are in black and white, it just adds to that overall impact of that scene, I think. Yeah, and I, I still go back to... Well, I love both of them. Both, so the scene with Ian and the scene with Barbara, I love them for different reasons. The scene with Barbara, more so for the sort of teacher Barbara comment on she knows she has the scissors and she's calling her on it. Versus the Ian one, again, it's the shadow of Susan, which I think had the episode been in colour, I don't think it would have been as impactful. Yeah, no. And like that that's the case with... Yeah, I suppose like um, certain people they don't like going back and watching black and white movies or black and white shows because it's just not their medium, and I think they're missing out because lack of color like so uh, has a huge impact on stuff. I think. Yeah, when you're dealing with blacks and whites and greys, you have like this almost visual bleed where your eye doesn't focus on just one thing. Because the colours are kind of running together. So you're looking at Susan, but it's Susan and the shadow as one. Yeah. Like If that made any sense at all. <laughs> no, no, I, I get you. Like, And like, we saw it as well like uh, in when we talked about the fight scene in An Unearthly Child with the camera cuts to Za and Cal's faces uh, with the flickering of the light and everything. I think had that been in colour, it it wouldn't have looked as intense. It, it just wouldn't have looked as good as it was. And I know that some, uh, I, th- I think some groups have, have attempted to recolour some of the old Doctor Who episodes. I, I think by recolouring them, it just takes a small bit out of it, I think. Yeah. Yeah. The one extra note I had on, <laughs> this isn't really on the story as a whole. It's more of a design choice. And I would love to ask Frank Cox about this if I ever had the opportunity to meet him. What's with the sleeping clothes on the TARDIS? <laughs> so Susan and Barbara, A, they're wearing identical sleeping clothes, which is a bit weird. But it's like these nuns' habits that they wear. Emphasised when Susan has the cold compress on her head, which looks like a wimple. But then Ian has a bathrobe that barely covers his arse. <laughs> Well, I think like we know that the TARDIS is an extensive wardrobe, so I think that's purely down to Mr. Chesterton's own personal choice. Yeah, well, like, Barbara, you know, pick something more than a potato sack. Like. <laughs> Maybe it's incredibly comfortable on the inside. Maybe. Maybe indeed. Next week, we're going to have another first. This is going to be the first lost story. So, can you still enjoy stories that aren't complete? Find out next time when we discuss Marco Polo. And if you would like to hear more about upcoming episodes and join in the conversation with us, you can check us out at Time Teamp, that's T-I-M-E-T-E-A-M-P, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or you can email us at timetravelingteamp at teamproductions.com. Until next time, bye. Bye.